Yesterday, we discussed the flow of dependent origination or the stream of dukkha. Today, we will consider how to stop that flow or stream of paticca samupata. We stop the stream of Paticca Samupata with sati, that is mindfulness. Or we can say that mindfulness is the means to stop the flow of dependent origination. Today we're going to explain this in a simple, direct way that even our children can understand. This is important because we must be able to explain these things to our children. We'll distinguish two aspects of this. There'll be the simply, purely material side, the physical kind, which is very simple and easy to see. And then there will be the, the mental or spiritual side, which is much more subtle, profound, and difficult to see. <clears throat> to explain this to children, we point out to them that in this world there is the sun and there is water and the sun heats the water so that it evaporates. Due to this evaporated water, there are clouds, there are rain clouds. Because of the rain clouds, the rain falls. And then you get rained on and catch a cold. And then you have, a, you're sick and you need to go to see the doctor to get some medicine. Or, because the rain falls, the road is slippery when wet. And because the road is slippery, you slip and fall down. And when you fall down, you hit your head and crack your skull and have a nasty wound. And so you have to see the doctor to take care of your wound. That these things depend and depend and depend. That each happens dependently. One after the other is called paticca samupata or dependent origination. But if you have sufficient mindfulness and intelligence, then you won't get rained on and you won't catch a cold. Or if you have enough mindfulness, you won't fall down on the slippery road. And so you needn't hurt because you've got mindfulness. So this is a material example of Paticca Samupata. Now we're going to teach our children on a higher level, 
on a mental level. And so we point out to our children that they have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodies, and minds. So we must teach them to know these things very well. And this isn't so difficult that they can't understand. And then we point out to them that in this world there are sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental objects which will make contact, which will stimulate their eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and minds that is of, the of our children. When a form or a sight stimulates the eye, then there arises what we call jatsu vijnana or eye consciousness. And we ask them to observe that this eye consciousness just happened when the form stimulated the eye. Before that, there wasn't the eye consciousness. It only happens after the form or sight stimulates the eye. So when the light waves stimulate the, the part of the nervous system we use for seeing, the visual part of the nervous system, then our children ought to recognize that it's the visual nervous system that sees the form. It isn't I see the form, it's not me seeing the form. It's just the visual part of the nervous system which sees the form. And we must have them observe so that they see for themselves that if there's just the light waves striking the visual nervous system, then there is a certain kind of result. But if it's, I see the form, if there's me seeing, then the result is totally different. If there's merely the activity of light waves stimulating the visual nervous system or the visual system, then it's, it has a meaning which is quite small. <clears throat> but if it's the form stimulates me and I see the form, then the meaning is quite strong, even violent. When sound waves stimulate the oral system, the hearing system, then let it just be that, just the sound waves striking the eardrum and so on. Don't let it be I hear. If it becomes I am hearing, then the results are totally different. Merely having the sound strike the eardrum is enough to determine whether one should do anything about the sound or not and what should be done. There's no need for some crazy ego to come in and love the sound or hate the sound or anything like that.
when an odor stimulates the the smelling system there's no need for it to be i smell there's just a smell stimulating the nose that's all when flavors stimulate the nervous system in the tongue for example while we're eating food there's no need for it to be i taste there's just let it leave it alone so it's just the flavors stimulating the nervous system in the tongue for example if the food isn't very delicious you can improve it with some seasoning but if it's i'm not delicious then we criticize and insult the cook when certain touches or pressures stimulate the nervous system in the skin and body then just leave it at that merely the sense of touch being stimulated without concocting it into i am touched or me is touched and then the results will be very different and when the mind or the mental system thinks let it just be thinking don't turn it into ego things or my thinking we need to instruct our children and point these things out to them so that they know all six of these possibilities the big difference is in that one way the egoistic concept of me of i of self is born but in the other way this egoistic thought me mine or i me doesn't need to be born and the situation is dealt with is responded to without any egoism then we teach the children further that when the visual system is stimulated by some sight some form then a third thing happens this thing we call eye consciousness arises and these three things when they meet and work together the the visual system or the eye the form and the eye consciousness these three together are called patsa patsa or contact when there is already this contact or patsa then there will be a reaction which comes out as vedana or feeling and because we 
didn't have any mindfulness and wisdom in the womb and have been lacking this intelligence since birth, then we don't understand the Vedana. So when there's a pleasant, when a pleasant Vedana stimulates us, then we react to it with liking, with being satisfied. And when there's, when a negative Vedana, an unpleasant Vedana stimulates, then we react to that with, with disliking, with anger, with hatred. Once there are these, there is this, some Vedana, once there is some Vedana, then there happens some desire. The desire develops according to the Vedana. If the Vedana is a positive, pleasant one, then there's the desire to get, to have, to keep, to get more of. If the Vedana is unpleasant, disagreeable, or negative, then the desire comes out in a form which is to get rid of, to destroy, can be one of displeasure, one of anger, even of hatred. These, these foolish kinds of desire happen because of our getting caught up in the Vedana. But if the Vedana is intelligent, there's mindfulness and wisdom with the Vedana, then the wanting that occurs in response to the Vedana is also intelligent and wise, which we call wise aspiration. But if it's the feeling is experienced ignorantly, then the desire that happens will also be ignorant. This is called stupid desire. But we've been stupid since the moment we were born. Since the mother's womb, we've lacked mindfulness and wisdom. So whatever stimulates our senses in whatever Vedana react to that stimulation, these tend to be foolish and ignorant. So we need to be very, very careful about all this. And when this, when this blind desire happens, the, the thing starts to get more intense. And there develops the feeling or the ignorant concept that there must be some me that desires. There must be some ego which desires. And so out of this ignorant desire, there arises me or attachment to the me who desires. This concept of me is called upadana, or in Thai pronunciation, upadana, which has just happened. This concept of me just occurred right there. 
It didn't exist originally. Once there is this upadana or attachment, this clinging to the me who desires, then there occurs a state of mind which is called, we can call existence. The Pali word for this is pawa, pawa, spelled B-H-A-V-A, can be translated being or existence. This refers to a certain state of mind that results from that ignorant attachment to the me who desires. And then once there is this pawa, this existence, as it solidifies a bit more, there arises the state of mind we call jati, jati, or birth. The ego has formed fully, it is developed fully, and is born. This birth of the ego is called jati, or birth. This is a mental birth, a birth that arises from ignorance and attachment. It's not, we're not referring to some physical birth where one is born from a mother's womb. Physical birth is no problem. We're not concerned here with physical birth. We're concerned with this mental birth that comes from ignorance and detachment. That is what causes all our problems. This mental birth is called jati. This, this jati means that the fool has been born. This is the birth of the ignorant man or the ignorant woman. Because of ignorance and attachment, the ego is fully developed and then is born as a foolish man or foolish woman. Once this ego is born, then there's the me, this big fat me, and everything around it is taken to be mine. So from the me there also becomes mine. This is how the ignorant person is born, out of ignorance and attachment. So depending on the I, this ignorant person is born. Dependent on the ears, this ego is born. Dependent on the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind, this ignorant person is born. In these six different ways, the ego can be, can be born. And once this me is born, then it takes everything to be mine. It takes physical birth to be my birth. It takes getting old to be my old age. It takes illness to be my 
sickness, and so on and so on. Now this ego birth happens dozens of times, even hundreds, some, sometimes more than a thousand times in a day. In one day this ego birth happens dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And then in a physical lifetime, it happens tens, hundreds of thousands, millions of times. If the parents aren't overly thick and ignorant, then they will be able to help their children to understand this matter of Vaticha Samupata. Our children should be able to understand the physical dependent origination about the rain and slipping on the pavement and cracking open one's head. And they ought to be able to understand the mental dependent origination of how through ignorance, attachment, and ego occur. And then they'll realize that mindfulness can stop the stream of Paticca Samupaipa. It can stop the physical dependent origination with mindfulness. We're careful and we don't let such mistakes occur. There are no such accidents. And also with mindfulness, the mental stream of dependent origination can be stopped at contact. By being mindful at contact, the stream is stopped. Or we can say the stream is redirected in a totally different way so that this stream of causes and conditions doesn't lead to dukkha, doesn't create any pain. If they have mindfulness and wisdom, from the very start, then there won't be any trouble. If one really has mindfulness, if one is really mindful and wise, then that mindfulness will be there right from the start, at the moment that anything makes contact. So that when there's seeing some form, there's just seeing the form. There's no I see. And when a sound stimulates the ear, there's just hearing. There's no me hearing. And the same when odors stimulate the nose, tastes the tongue, touches the body, and thoughts the mind. There's just smelling, tasting, touching, and mental experiencing. There's no me or ego involved. Even better, there is mindfulness from the moment of contact. And with this mindfulness, one can understand the contact. One knows what contact is. That contact is merely the seeing, the meeting together of the sense organ, the sense object, and the sense consciousness. That's all that is taking place. And with this understanding, then, the Vedanai is not ignorant. 
Vedana isn't merely a blind, ignorant reaction. And then one isn't deceived by the positive and the negative. One isn't tricked by these things. And so there isn't any desire. And without desire, there's no attachment. There's no grasping at the me who desires because there's no desire. So when there's mindfulness from the moment of contact, from the moment that contact arises, this mindfulness will stop the stream of concocting so that it doesn't end up in dukkha. Instead, there is understanding. The, feel, the contact, the feelings are understood. And so there's no need for desire and attachment. The problem is that most of us being just ordinary people don't have enough mindfulness. Ordinary people aren't mindful enough to be able to stop the flow of Bhatichya Samupada. So it keeps flowing, it keeps going on and on. For this reason we need to train sati. We need to develop sati or mindfulness. And this is why we take up the system of training that's called anapanasati, mindfulness with breathing in and out, as you have been learning about and practicing at the center. We need to use this approach to develop sufficient mindfulness, mindfulness that is strong enough and quick enough to be there at the moment of contact in order to stop the flow of dependent origination. If there is this mindfulness, then all kinds of other things will develop. Wisdom will develop. Clear, ready comprehension of what's happening will develop. And all kinds of other dhammas will come. Once we develop that mindfulness at the moment of contact. This is the importance of using mindfulness with breathing to train and develop mindfulness. Now when we speak of being mindful or having mindfulness, we mean that mindfulness must be complete. It must be sufficient and it must be fast. To really have mindfulness, that mindfulness needs to be perfect, lacking in nothing. It needs to have enough strength to do its work and it has to be fast. When these three aspects of mindfulness are fully developed, we call that pra-arahan, the one who has this kind of perfect mindfulness is called the arahan. This is the, the human being that no longer has any problems with the, the flow of dependent origination, the arahan. 
the importance of mindfulness is its great speed. The great speed of mindfulness brings wisdom to the situation in time. If it's fast enough, if it's in the nick of time, then it's called mindfulness or sati. But if it's too late, if it's slow, then we don't call it mindfulness. The word sati or mindfulness comes from the word sara, sara, which means arrow. It seems that in the old days, the arrow was the fastest thing which people knew. So they used the arrow or sara as a symbol for the great speed of sati. Nowadays, we would maybe use something else such as a bullet or maybe the speed of light as our symbol for mindfulness. The point is that sati is fast. It has the speed necessary to be there immediately the moment there is contact. You can see the importance of this by reflecting on all the knowledge and experience we have. We've learned many things in life, but so often we're unable to apply what we've learned from life. This is because mindfulness isn't fast enough. We lack the mindfulness to bring this experience and understanding into action. And so all our learning and intelligence is wasted simply because we lack mindfulness. But when there is mindfulness, it, it retrieves, or you could say it delivers, the necessary wisdom immediately in the nick of time to deal with whatever's making contact. So with mindfulness, all our intelligence, experience, and wisdom is useful. But without mindfulness, all of that intelligence and knowledge is wasted. Yesterday we spoke about the stream of Paticca Samupada. Today, we'll speak about the thing which stops that stream of dependent origination, namely <coughs> mindfulness. And so now we'll talk about mindfulness under, as it goes under the name of Anapanasati Bhavana or the development of mindfulness every time one breathes in and breathes out. Now this understanding of how to use sati is something mental. It's not a physical kind of understanding or skill. In human life we need both physical knowledge and mental knowledge. We need to be able to deal both with our physical and mental realities. 
the understanding of how to develop mindfulness and how to use mindfulness to stop the stream of Paticca Samupada is a mental understanding. It regards what's taking place within us, within the mind. Now don't think that this mental understanding has just occurred, that it was totally missing until just a moment ago. This mental understanding has existed along with our physical understanding from the start. They have both evolved together. The thing is that we have tended to ignore the mental or spiritual understanding. It's much more subtle, and so we tend to overlook it. But it's been developing, evolving all along. All along we've had the kind of mindfulness which we can call instinctual. That instinctual kind of mindfulness was good enough to enable us to walk, to move, to do the physical things we need to do in the world. So this kind of understanding and ability has been with us all along. And not only this instinctual mindfulness, but also basic levels of intelligence that enable us to deal with our surroundings and environment. If we get wet, we know how to dry ourselves off. If we get dirty, we know how to clean ourselves and so on. And then further, there's an instinctual kind of concentration. The mind already has the ability to focus, to collect itself and focus on something. The mind can do this naturally, instinctually. So all these kinds of knowledge, mental knowledge, mental understanding have already existed and have developed and evolved along with our physical development. However, these instinctual levels of mindfulness, intelligence, and concentration, although good enough to enable us to survive in the physical world and deal with physical realities, these aren't strong enough, they aren't developed enough to deal with the mental realities. Specifically, they're not able to cope with the stream of dependent origination. The dependent origination is too fast and subtle for these ordinary levels of mindfulness, intelligence, and concentration. And so we need to develop them further. We can't just rely on the natural development of life. We need to use a specific form of training in order to develop mindfulness, intelligence, and concentration to the levels we need to stop the flow of Paticca Samupada. From this start, mind and body have existed together. Nama, Rupa have been inseparably connected from the beginning of life. And life continues with these two aspects, interrelated, interdependent. 
<clears throat> and so from the start we must develop both of them together. We can't just develop the body and ignore the mind or vice versa. So they need to evolve together. Even if this happens accidentally or through coincidence. For example, we reflect on history a bit. We know that originally human beings ate raw meat. But then somewhere along the line, somebody dropped some meat in fire. And then after tasting it, they found it tasted better. And so the idea of cooking the meat developed, although it, it was discovered by accident. And then later somebody dropped a piece of meat in some, some liquid. And they found out that that added to the taste. And so then people learned to make sauces out of fruits and seasonings of leaves and different things. And so this kind of physical development occurred even if through accident. But people were learning how to, to make improvements, how to develop things. And it's the same with the mind. One needs to develop the mind, even if one comes across things somewhat by accident. For example, one learns that, oh, if I breathe like this, instead of the other way, the old way, it's better. It's healthier, more invigorating, more relaxing. It gives more strength and energy. One discovers that to breathe in a certain way is superior. And so one can develop the mind in these ways. So body and mind go together. You, you can't separate them. They're an intimate pair throughout life. And since ancient times, Human beings have known how to use the breathing to develop both the body and the mind. They found how to use the breathing to increase health and strength, to develop the body. And they also knew how to use the breathing to develop the mind. Nowadays, this kind of knowledge is pretty much lost. People have no interest in it because they prefer quick and easy methods. For example, nowadays we have lots of pills and medicines to use to affect the mind. We no longer use the ancient techniques. So for example, we have things like um, heroin or opium to suppress the mind. Or when we want to get stimulated, we have various stimulants such as caffeine as well as amphetamines in order to stimulate and excite the mind. Or if we want to um, do all kinds of strange and interesting things, we have things like LSD, we have hallucinogens to really give the mind a strange and fascinating ride. And then we have 
If we want to calm and soothe the mind, we have tranquilizers. Nowadays, we have all these different kinds of drugs to change the mind. But the old hermits and rishis and sages and meditators, they don't need to use any of these pills or medicines. They know how to use the mind to do it. If they need to push down the mind, they can do that using the breathing. If they need to raise up, to lift up, to stimulate the mind, they can do that with the breathing. They can even fantasize and hallucinate and see all kinds of visions. And they can calm and soothe the mind without having to use any of these medicines and things. The old meditators in the forests and caves knew how to use the breathing to deal with the mind directly. They didn't have to rely on these these drugs and things. But eventually, of all this knowledge, they, re they selected that which was essential. There's a lot of fascinating things one can do with the mind, but it's not all necessary. So with experience, it was discovered what, what kind of things were truly needed. And then these have been refined and developed so as to be able to deal with the basic problems of the mind. Nowadays, we don't bother with any of that. We just go to our psychologists and have them give us these pills and that pills, or we may use alcohol or whatever. We try to change our minds or develop our minds using these physical tricks. But there's the, the purely mental way of meditation as well. In short, from, from the beginning, body and mind have always existed together interdependently. And as we, the way we develop our bodies for physical health and our knowledge about the physical material world, we also need to, at the same time, develop our mental knowledge of how to, of the mental life, of how to develop the mind. So of all the ways of developing the mind, all the tricks that have been discovered in human history, we've, there have been selected the essential ingredients the things that are absolutely necessary. And so what remain are two primary ways of developing the mind. The first way is to calm the mind, to make the mind peaceful so that it has a, a deep but peaceful joy. And then the other way is to develop the mind in the way that leads to direct realization, to direct intuitive experience of reality of truth. So the, the first <clears throat> means of development leads to what is called samadhi, 
samadhi or concentration, the mind that is focused, con collected, stable, and peaceful. And the second form of developing the mind is the way of wisdom. It leads to insight into the nature, the true nature of things. So of all the ways of developing the mind, these two particular ways have been remain as the essentials. Now these two can be brought together because they, if they're done in the right way, they mutually support each other. So by bringing these two together, we get the system of practice called anapanasati. In this way of training the mind, first the mind is calmed and made peaceful. So concentration is developed. And then that concentration is used for the purpose of realization, for insight. In this system of practice, the two can't be separated. They go together. So what the Buddha has done has refined the knowledge and means of development that were available and then systematized it in a very efficient yet comprehensive way, which covers these two basic areas of developing the mind that of concentration and of wisdom. In this system of training, there are four areas to be explored. In order to fulfill these two means of development, we will investigate and train with four areas of life. The first is the kaya, or body, the physical aspect of existence, including the senses. The second are the vetana, the feelings which arise toward the body, the different kinds of feelings or sensations that occur regarding sensual experience. And then the third is the mind, the thing that experiences those feelings. And then fourth are all the things that trick the mind, all the things that deceive the mind into attaching to them, all the things that put on an illusion and then the mind buys that illusion and goes and attaches to things as being me or mine. These are the four areas to be explored. So in Anapanasati, the system of training will cover all of these. First, there is contemplation of the body. The body is thoroughly contemplated in detail until it is understood and is no longer a problem. Then there is Vetanun Patsana, the contemplation of the feelings. These are thoroughly examined and explored until they're no longer a problem. 
And then there is contemplation of the mind. The mind is explored in its different aspects until these no longer present any trouble. And then lastly, contemplation of dhammas. Things, natural things are contemplated until they are thoroughly understood and are no longer able to deceive the mind. They no longer trick the mind into attaching. So this system of practice includes all four of these areas. The body, the feelings, the mind, and Dhamma. So in the first stage of this practice, we deal with the body. There are these physical bodies. There's the physical body made up of flesh, um, organs, blood, and all that. And then associated with this physical body is the breathing, which can be called the breath body. This doesn't mean some separate kind of body. It just means that part of the physical reality which we call the breathing. It's also called the prana, the prana which sometimes means the life force. There's this flesh and blood body and then there's the breathing, the body of breathing. And this breathing body nurtures and sustains the flesh body. So we examine both of these kind of these bodies, the the breathing, the body of the breathing. We study this carefully, the different forms it takes, the different qualities it has, how it changes. And then we study how that affects the flesh and blood, blood body. We see how these two are inseparable. And then we make that breathing correct and fit so that it's best for the flesh and blood body. We find the most correct kind of breathing so that the body is healthy, is fit, is strong, so that it has the ability to do what is needed. This is the first stage of our training with dealing with the body. In, in short, we can say there are two kinds of body that need to be understood, the flesh and blood body and the breathing body. When, the, when both the, this flesh and blood body and the breathing body are natural, when they're normal, here the word normal is different than the way most people mean it. When it's in its proper, natural, normal state of balance, harmony, and health. That's what we're talking about. When the breathing body is in its natural, normal state, then the flesh and blood body will also be normal and healthy. Conversely, when the flesh and blood body has this natural normalcy, then the breathing will be natural and normal. The two support each other 
in this way. But in terms of our training, we can't directly influence or bring about that, that flesh and blood body normalcy. But we can, the mind can directly influence the breathing. And so what we can make use of this natural fact to improve the breathing, to improve it until it, it, it finds that normalcy, that balance, that harmony. And this in turn will influence and improve the body so that the flesh and blood body finds its state of normalcy and health. And so we learn to use the breathing body to, and to make it harmonious, healthy, and then to use that to do the same with the flesh and blood body. And then where our physical health, there's good physical health. Physically there is normality. Nothing is wrong, nothing is um, out of balance. This is very useful for us in all aspects of life and especially in meditation. Now the body doesn't just kind of sit there like a lump. The body um, experiences sensations. There are feelings that arise towards the body. And so these feelings give us another area for study. Some of the feelings that arise through the body are pleasant and these pleasant positive feelings give rise to contentment. And so in the second stage of practice one investigates this contentment that occurs. There are two levels to this contentment, to the satisfaction with positive, pleasant sensations in the body. The first level is quite excited, is strong, vigorous. We can call it rapture. This tends to excite and stimulate the mind. The second level of contentment is calm and cool. We can call it bliss. They're both similar in that they're a kind of satisfaction with or contentment with the positive, pleasant sensations of the body. But one is quite vigorous, strong, exciting and disturbing, while the other is cool, peaceful and soothing. So we investigate and explore these feelings, these two kinds of contentment. And as we investigate them, we discover that these feelings have the ability to concoct the mind. This these kinds of satisfaction or contentment stimulate the mind. 
the energetic, excited kind stimulate the mind in certain ways. They stir up certain kinds of thoughts. Whereas the cool, peaceful contentment concocts the mind in a different way. So we need to observe and thoroughly understand how these feelings can concoct or influence the mind. And then we need to be able to come to deal with that concocting of the mind, to get control of it, so that the feelings aren't just running our lives, but that so we get control over the feelings and over the mind. This is the second stage of this practice. It's called contemplation of the Vedana. So if one can regulate or master the feelings, then one can ma- this is the way to master the mind. Bringing the feelings under one's control is the way to bring the mind under control. So this is what the second stage of practice is, to train in a very subtle and wise mastery of the feelings, which will give us control over the mind as well. The next thing we come to is that which is the the meeting point or the gathering point for everything. Everything comes together in the mind. This is the meeting point for all experience. And so our third stage of practice concerns the mind. The feelings, the Vedana, are able to concoct the mind. We call them the mind concoctors. They have all kinds of influence over the mind. So if we can't control these feelings, we can't control the mind. However, once these feelings are under control, then the mind can be brought under control, becoming very experienced in this mental control is what the third stage of practice is. Since everything happens to the mind, for the mind, with the mind, in the mind, then having very subtle mastery of the mind is a valuable thing. This training regarding the mind begins with getting to know all kinds of mind with experience all possible kinds of mind. For example, is this a mind with dukkha or is it a happy mind? Examining, investigating whether the mind is defiled or not defiled. What is the mind like when there are defilements, greed, anger, and delusion? And what is the mind like when there aren't any defilements, Some of the time, there aren't any defilements in the mind. So we can experience directly that temporary undefiled mind. And then we can even estimate 
the mind that has no defilements whatsoever, the mind in which all defilement is thoroughly eradicated. From direct experience of the defiled mind and the temporarily undefiled mind, we can get a quite clear understanding of the mind that is the opposite. The defiled mind is this, and its opposite is the mind that is totally free of defilements. And we can estimate what that will be like. So through both direct experience and a kind of estimation, this isn't thinking about it, but it's just looking deeply at the defiled mind until we can understand what the undefiled mind is like. This is the first um, lesson for getting to know the mind. The second lesson for this stage of practice is to make the mind delightful, to delight the mind. We've already had experience with the feelings of contentment and satisfaction. So now we use those feelings to make the mind joyful. We force the mind to be delighted, to be glad, to be joyful in this and that way on various levels with various degrees of intensity. We become totally expert in delighting the mind, in making the mind joyful. This is the second lesson regarding the mind. We don't have to use any LSD or any tranquilizers or magic mushrooms. All we need to use, we can just use the breathing and the vetana to delight the mind, to make it thoroughly joyful. The third lesson is to make the mind samadhi or concentrated. This, the word samadhi has a much deeper and um, important meaning than that which you usually give to the word concentration. The English word concentration doesn't really capture the full meaning of the Pali word samadhi. So please listen carefully to what we mean by samadhi. The first factor or component of concentration is that the mind is clean. It's free. There's nothing that disturbs or annoys it. This mind is, this, this is the factor of purity. The second factor is the mind is secure. It's securely fixed. It's collected together and focused. When the mind is strongly focused, when nothing can shake it, when it's very stable, when it's all gathered together, collected into one, when there's this oneness of mind. This is called um, secure, or st secure stability. It's the focused mind. It's when the mind has the highest equilibrium or balance. 
The third factor is activeness. The mind is totally active. It's very fluid and agile in performing any task, any duty. This mind is always ready to do whatever needs to be done. It's called kamaniya in the Pali language. The third factor is this activeness or readiness. So there are these three factors to samadhi. When we, the concentration we're talking about must have these three factors of purity, stable focus, and activity. If it doesn't have these three factors, then it isn't the concentration we're talking about. It's not the correct kind of samadhi which we're perfecting in this third lesson of the mental, of the contemplation of mind. So we need to understand these three factors and develop all of them fully to really have the full meaning of samadhi. The fourth step of this stage of practice is called um, making the mind let go or releasing the mind. This is simply to have the mind let go of, to release, to drop anything that it's clinging to, hanging on to, grasping at, or attaching to. So this is to make the mind free. You can call it releasing the mind or liberating the mind. Making the mind free of everything is the fourth lesson here. So this stage of our training has four lessons or steps. The first is knowing every kind of mind. The second is making the mind delightful or giving the mind enjoyment. The third is concentrating the mind. And the fourth is releasing and liberating the mind. These four lessons together make up what we call jitanu vatsana, contemplation of mind. The fourth stage of practice, which is the final one, concerns dhamma. We've already talked a lot about the meaning of the word dhamma. We've said that dhamma means everything. And here dhamma means everything that tricks and deceives the mind. All the things that trick us into attaching to them. And the world, life is full of these things. Everything can trick us into attachment. Forgive us for, for saying so, but we have to say that even God deceives us. Even God tricks us into attachment. We take God and get tricked into grasping and clinging. The same is true of Nibbana. Nibbana can be the object of grasping and clinging for 
Buddhists who don't understand it correctly, or even for non-Buddhists. Everything can be an object of attachment, both the sankata, the conditioned, concocted phenomena, and the asankata, the unconditioned, unconcocted, unborn noumenon. All of these can be the basis for attachment. So we need to investigate, study, observe all these things, all these dhammas, until they can't deceive us anymore, until they can't trick us into attachment. So not even God can make us attach or cling. Or how about if we put it this way, from the lowest thing to the highest, from the crudest, coarsest thing to the most sublime thing, that which we would call the supreme thing. All of these, the entire span from lowest to highest, without the exception of anything, all of these can, are the basis for attachment. We can attach to everything. The highest Dhamma the Dhamma that when truly seen, we can't attach to, that Dhamma in which there's no possibility of attaching, is called Tathāta, Tathāta, which we can translate suchness or thusness. When we see the suchness, that things are merely thus, they're just such, this such-likeness of things, that they're merely thus, neither positive nor negative, neither good nor bad. When seeing this thusness, then there is no chance of attaching. This is the Dhamma that we need to see for ourselves, the Dhamma of Tathata. Tata Tata means thus or such, like this. And ta means state of being. It means the state of being. So tata ta can be pronounced tata ta or tata ta means the state of being thus, the state of being just like this. And the one who has realized that state, the one who has realized thusness, is called tathagato. Gato means to have reached, to have realized. And to have realized tata, to have realized thusness, is called tathagato. Those who have truly realized thusness are the arahants, the, the perfected human being in which there is no more grasping and clinging. And the Buddha is the chief, the leader of all of these tathagatos. Just sitting here, we probably won't recognize tathata, it's necessary to have 
deepening insight through a series of realizations to come to the profound recognition, realization of thusness. So we must start with seeing impermanence, by seeing the state of impermanence in all things, which is called anicchata, anicchata. In insight into the fact of impermanence is the starting point. Impermanence means ceaseless change, constant change, the perpetual flux of always changing. Things are like this because they have their causes and conditions, which have their causes and conditions. And because of the state of existing through and dependent upon causes and conditions, things must always be changing. This state of perpetual flux and change is the meaning of impermanence. Now, once we've realized seen this impermanence, then we've seen a level of thusness. One seen a certain degree of datata when one has seen this anicchata. And then one sees further that having to live with impermanent things is a pain. Having to live with a world, a life of nothing but impermanent things is hard to live with or hard to bear, hard to endure. This, this quality of being difficult to endure is the meaning of dukkha, or here dukkata, the quality of dukkhaness. And this is to see a further level or degree of tathata. And through seeing that everything is always changing, then one sees that in these changing things there's no real self. There's no, there's no thing, if there's all this change and nothing but change, then there's no thing that can stand separate from that, independent and unchanging. There's nothing that has the meaning of being self. There's nothing which is really self in all that change. This is to see anatta or anatata, the state, the fact of being not-self, the fact that everything is not-self. This is to see tathata even more. When one sees these three together, sees the facts of impermanence, dukkhaness, and not-self altogether, seeing the thusness of these, this is called Hamatitata. Hitta means standing in or established in. And so to be established in nature. This essentially means the naturalness of things. This is the natural way, the natural being. 
the natural state of things, namely impermanence, the difficult to endurableness, and the not-selfness. And then we see further into why are things like this? Why is it that they are impermanent, not-self, and so on? And one realizes that it's because there's the natural law which makes things this way. The natural law forces things to be impermanent and dukkha and not-self. This is called tamaniyamata, tamaniyamata, the natural lawfulness of things. This is the natural justice, that things are just this way because of the law of nature. And when we have seen these successively, beginning with the fact of impermanence through this natural lawfulness, then one sees paticca samupada, one sees that the fact that all things are dependently originated, that all things exist merely dependent upon causes and conditions. And when we see this fact thoroughly to its end, we call that itapajayata, itapajayata, which is this fundamental fact that all things depend on conditions that all things are conditioned and have their existence and change through conditions. When one sees this itapajayata, the, the fact of dependent conditionality, when so, one thoroughly realizes in its wholeness, in its depth, the fact of paticca samupata, one sees that nowhere in any of this can there be found an atta, an eternal soul, or some permanent self, some unchanging substance. When seeing that all things arise, exist, and pass away according to causes and conditions, one recognizes that nowhere is there any real atta or self. And this is to penetrate the fact of voidness or sunyata, sunyata, that everything is void of self, that the universe and everything in the universe is absolutely void of self, of any unchanging inherent substance, self or soul. This word sunyata, which we like to translate as voidness, is very difficult to understand. People often confuse it with some kind of material emptiness or nothingness, which is not the meaning of voidness. So one needs to be careful to, to recognize the true meaning of voidness. To really understand Buddhism, to really get to the bottom of Buddhism, one must realize for oneself voidness. Whether we're talking about Theravada or Southern Buddhism or Mahayana, the Northern Buddhism, they're exactly the same in this 
fundamental, essential fact of the need to recognize voidness. Voidness is not nothingness. Voidness is not some kind of nihilism. Please be very careful to avoid these foolish misinterpretations. In voidness, everything can exist. All things exist in their particular ways. But in the existence of all things within voidness, there is no atta or self to be found. Voidness doesn't mean nothingness. It doesn't mean that things don't exist. It just means that the existence and change of things is void of atta, void of self, void of any eternal soul. In this universe there is everything, but everything is void of self. In this body, in this life, there is everything, but it's all void of self, void of atta. When seeing this voidness step by step, then one comes to the full seeing of tatata. When seeing that, when one sees that whatever it is, it's void of self. When one sees that everything is voidness, then one has realized tatata. Whether it's the concocted the sankata or the unconcocted, the asankata, whether it's positive or negative, male or female, whatever it is, it's void of self. Realizing this is to realize the thusness, the just this wayness, the that's how things areness of things. Seeing fully voidness of self, seeing fully the tatata, the thusness, that things are just thus, meaning void of self. Having seen all of these, then the mind is unaffected. The mind that thoroughly realizes sunyata and tatata cannot be affected by anything. There's nothing positive or negative, good or bad, male or female, right or wrong, that can affect this mind. Which brings us to the last level, the highest level, the level that's set called Atamayata. This mind that is thoroughly penetrated thusness is the mind that has Atamayata. Although it may be a little difficult for you, please don't try to translate this word. Translation gets people into all kinds of trouble. So please be patient and learn the Pali word. Atamayata, Atamayata, A-T-A-M-M-A-Y-A-T, long A. Atamayata. Literally, this word means can't be produced can't be affected by anything. Atamayata means there isn't anything which can produce 
or affected. When the mind has a dhammayata, there's nothing that can produce it, fabricate it, or make it into anything. There isn't anything which can affect it. This is the highest mind there is, the mind that is above and beyond the influence and power of everything. But if you, your feeling about this is that it's lacking in flavor, that it's tasteless, then we don't know what to say to you. So altogether, there is the realization of anicchata, impermanence, and then tukata, the unendurableness of things, and then anatata, the fact of not-self. And then there's tamantitata, the naturalness of things, and then tama niyamata, the lawfulness of things, and then itapajayata, the dependent conditionality of everything, and then sunyata, voidness, datata, thusness, and adhammayata. Altogether, there are three groups of three. They come in three trios. And then the trio of trios makes nine altogether, or nine da's, nine eyes. Please remember the word nine eyes. All of these words, anicchata, tukata, sunyata, datata, atamayata, end with the word da, which in Pali means state of being or natural fact. But in Thai means I, the I that we see with. So just remember this simple word, nine eyes. Remember the nine eyes. And then with your friends, while you're traveling every night when you come to a restaurant or a guest house, when you talk with people, talk about these nine eyes. And when you get home with your friends and family, discuss these nine eyes. If you spend your time discussing them, this will be the most direct and fastest way to get to the heart of Buddhism, to reach the final goal of Dhamma. Now as we investigate further through the realization, realization of these nine eyes, then our attachment to things begins to dissolve. This dissolving of attachment is called viraka, which means fading away. And so we, we, there is the lesson of studying and observing the fading away of attachment. So the first step is the realization of the nine eyes. And then the second step is this fading away of attachment and observing it. And this brings us to the third step, which is the extinction, the total cessation, the utter quenching of all attachment. When the attachment is thoroughly extinct, this is called nirota, nirota. Contemplating it is the third lesson here. The final step of this stage and of all of the practice is 
emancipation or vimutti to be emancipated or the highest spiritual salvation. But here, the Buddha didn't call it that. He called it throwing back, throwing back, which is a little bit amusing that when coming to the highest state of spiritual or human development and evolution, the Buddha used the word throwing back. In Pali, the word is patinitsaka, patinitsaka, which means throwing back. What the Buddha is getting at is all along we've been attaching, accumulating, hoarding, grasping and clinging. And now we just throw it all back, throwing everything back to nature. This is the end. This is the finish of it all. This completes the practice of anapanasati. In the past, we were stupid. We went around clinging and grabbing at everything as being me and mine. In our stupidity, we cluttered up our lives with nothing but attachment. And so we were full of problems and pain. But now the stupidity has been destroyed through the realization of the nine eyes. Ignorance is eradicated. And so attachment has ended through seeing things according to reality. There's no more clinging, no more grasping. And so all those dhammas that previously tricked us are now thrown back to their rightful owner. Before, in our stupidity, we were like thieves, stealing everything from nature. Now, in wisdom, we throw it all back to nature. We're no longer thieves, and so we no longer need to be punished. And so we are free, liberated, saved. Please listen very carefully. We'd like to summarize this whole system of practice. The first stage is about the body, to control the body, to have thorough mastery of the body, to be the master or boss of the body. The second stage is about the, is that we thoroughly understand the feelings and sensations of the body so that we can control them. We're master over these feelings of the body. The third stage is that we thoroughly understand the mind so that we can control it. We're masters of the mind. The fourth stage is that we thoroughly understand everything that can trick us into attachment. All the things that deceive us into attachment are thoroughly understood so they can't deceive us or trick us anymore. And then we are their masters. Instead of them mastering and controlling us, we are the masters of all these things which have ever deceived us. Once more, first, to be master of the, over the body. Second, 
to be master over the bodily feelings. Third, to be master of the mind. And fourth, to be master of everything that will trick us into being stupid. So there are four stages or tetrads. Each is made up of four exercises or lessons. So altogether there are 16 steps or lessons that make up this system of practice called anapanasati. Please forgive me. Please forgive me very much. You've been very good listeners. So thank you very much for being very good listeners. And we close today's talk at this, at this time.